This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 456 of IAQ Radio. It's Good Friday, April 14th, 2017. And this week, we welcome an all-star lineup of disaster restoration professionals, Ken Larson, Ed Cross, Peter Crosa, and Pete Consigli. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. We will be at the Greenville Technical College in May, May 8th through the 12th, so take a look and stop and say hello. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Congratulations to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Great Friday, April 14, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. The Advocatus Diaboli was formerly an official position within the Catholic Church. Translate the Latin Advocatus Diaboli into English. Back to you, Joe. <laughs> Good one. Good one there, Cliff. All right. So today we, we mentioned we've got an all-star lineup. We're calling this one Restoration Contractors of the Future. Will they get a spine or be rolled over? And we've got an all-star lineup here to discuss it. We're going to start with Peter Crosa. He has been a licensed independent adjuster and private investigator for over 30 years, handling large complex losses throughout the United States and Latin America. Since 2000, he has traveled the country conducting workshops and keynote speeches on the topic of marketing vendor services to adjusters and insurance companies. Ken Larson has been involved in the industry for almost four decades as a restoration contractor, industry trainer, consultant, author, and advocate for the water damage and restorative drying segment of the cleaning and restoration industry. And Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer. He has represented over 100 restoration contractors, 
in over 20 states in collection disputes, standard of care issues, and mold claims, successfully resolving over 2,000 issues. He also has some contracts and forms available on his website, and that's the restoration lawyer, Ed Cross. Pete Consigli, the global restoration industry watchdog, has been involved in the cleaning and restoration industry for over 40 years as a contractor, industry trainer, author, consultant, and industry advocate. Okay, so let's get the gang on here. We'll get everybody unmuted, and let's start with Pete, the restoration industry's global watchdog. Pete, give us a little highlight. Um, you know, we pulled this together after last week's RIA convention, and you've got three of the speakers, one, I think, maybe one or two keynote speakers here as well. And um, I want you to give us a little highlight of some of the high points that occurred. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, guys. And uh, I um, kind of want to just kick it off with uh, with a couple of notes that I took. You know, the, the convention was in Palm Springs, which has uh, always been a, a great draw. We had a, a lot of a lot of Australian members that came in. Uh, I want to start off by saying our keynote speaker was a guy named Randy Herrick, uh, the founder of TRX. He was a Navy SEAL, and uh, he, he did a he did a the, the keynote uh, on team building and leadership, which was fantastic. Um, that was sponsored by Sunbelt and, of course, uh, John, our friends at John Don and uh, and the folks at Aridry. But uh, the one key thing that I took out of there, I thought was uh, was really quite a uh, quite a uh, interesting. Is he he talked about uh, bitching up. That you should always bitch up, never, never bitch down, and, and rarely should you ever bitch sideways. I thought that kind of strung a chord, um, kind of related to that. Maybe a couple of the guys on the call kind of could relate to that too. Yeah. Um, there, there were two. Uh, uh, the, uh, we had a great induction ceremony. Several, several people got inducted for the CR, the WLS, and the CMP, including three Australian members. They were all over Facebook and Lincoln. They did all three in one year. It's never been done in the history of the association. That was. Uh, they were quite a hit, and uh, the Z-Man uh, won the Golden Quill Award for his article on concerns over the water damage industry. I know that the, the listeners of the show are very familiar with that. We've had a couple of shows on there, the article that he wrote in tandem with uh, with Ken, and uh, he gave a big shout-out to Ken and also John Downey for the work that he did in getting that peer-reviewed in uh, CNR, uh, I mean in, uh, in the journal, and then it was republished in CNR, and it won the Golden Quill, so that was quite interesting. Of course... Um, Mr. Larson uh, got uh, highly honored with REA's uh, longest uh, and most prestigious honor. He won the Martin Martin L. King Award. Um, uh, Sam Bergman did a fabulous job um, of doing the presentation speech. Uh, Michelle Blevins actually live-streamed Ken's acceptance speech, and uh, Jeff Gross has got an article in Clean Facts on it. So those were those were kind of the you know the the highlights from that perspective. But to get really right to the heart of the show is. You know, the association um, has kind of had this storyline, and, and IEQ Radio's been involved with it for, you know, about the last year and a variety of shows that have been done that kind of deals with the state uh, and the future of the water damage uh, and drying industry in particular, that particular segment of the, of the larger cleaning and restoration industry. I think it started last year with uh, the Narrowing the Divide debate with uh, Ralph Moon, Michael Bowden, Harvey Cohen, uh, Paul Hanahan from FAIR did a terrific show. On that, and over the last year, uh, you know, Ken and and Peter Croson, myself, and Cliff and Phil Rosenberg Jr. all on the CNR editorial advisory committee. There's been a series of articles in the magazines over the last year that have dealt with the issues that are. 
built up at the convention are going to be discussed on today's show, dealing with referral fees, uh, the TPA building bridges, bringing walls down, uh, op- opting out of the of the programs, and then uh, we closed out the year with a cover story that uh, that I did on the future of the industry. You know the the, the theme of the of the kind of the message today: get a spine or or, or be rolled over. Um, the ISF show in Tampa about a month ago, you know, and the, I know the the listeners are familiar with that. Um, that was been advertised on the you know on your program yep. with that great voice spike. And um, <laughs> Ken made that comment from the podium, and I and it really struck a chord with me. So uh, so there were there were three sessions which I think um, really kind of laid the groundwork for the show today. And I really thank you guys for you know for having us on. Uh, Peter Crosa uh, with Michael Bowden uh, did a breakout session that Ken moderated called the do's and don'ts of uh, dealing with referral fees, uh, deductibles, gratuities, comps, all those kind of things. What's appropriate, what isn't. In some cases, the referral fees are illegal. Uh, uh, Ed Cross um, referenced that in the article that Peter did, and I, and I think he probably has some comments today for the listeners on the show. Um, Ed also was the keynote speaker, the day two keynote. Randy Herrick, the Navy SEAL was day one and day two. Ed, Ed uh, did a brand new talk called the uh, Six New Legal Points um, that uh, restoration contractors need to know about uh, in, in 2017. And then that kind of led up to the town hall, which closed closed out the uh, the annual conference. We've been doing these town halls, so this will be our third year now. And uh, we had three different presentations uh, by Peter. I, I kind of sum up, I think uh, the big message that I got from listening to Peter talk was, you know, a lot of the members want to know how come the insurance companies can't differentiate the good guys from maybe the bad guys, the gouges, etc. And Peter, Peter's point was is they really don't care. Um, and this was really kind of, I think, um, I don't want to say alarming isn't the right word, but it was thought-provoking from a guy who's the, sit- the sitting president of the National Association of Independent Insurance Adjusters, and he used an analogy of Widow Brown. He says, what people care about is Tell, tell the homeowner's story, the property owner's story. Um, they don't really care about the restoration guys, and they can't tell the difference. Then, of course, Ken, Ken came on and gave his, uh, his version of, uh, you know, a, a, an alternative, uh, an option for the industry with this third-party evaluator program, the registered third-party evaluator. He's certainly going to talk about that. He gave a wonderful presentation to, uh, you know, how restorers could help position themselves and how experts in the industries could, could maybe – you know, help differentiate some of the issues that are that are going on in the marketplace that essentially uh, pull the homeowners into the into the middle of these claims after they've already been stressed out when when they've had a loss. Um, and then and then I the big message I got from listening to Ed was that the industry needs to either band together or we're going to burn together. That that was kind of a message that Ben Franklin kind of gave to the thirteen colonies when they had to decide uh, you know that they want to hang individually and they want to hang together. But at the end of the day. Um, I think Marty King, 10 years ago, kind of had it right. He said this was uh, uh, the, the choices that we have to make um, uh, are, uh, you know, it, it, it's our decision. They, we could, uh, you know, uh, answer these questions without getting drawn into the middle. But he called it an avoidable risk. And um, at the time in 2007 when, he del- when that message was delivered at one of the REA conferences, it was right, it was a year or two after Katrina. And one of the major insurance companies and one of the major software companies were actually involved in a lawsuit that was, uh, I don't, don't remember how it was settled, but I remember it was, it was originated by a bunch of uh, 
southeastern state uh, U.S. senators who felt that um, the public wasn't being uh, treated fairly. And, um, of course, I mean, maybe that lends to Peter's point about Widow Brown. So um, to kind of wrap everything up, you know, I had the privilege to uh, moderate the Q&A portion, well, obviously the whole town hall. There was at least a good 45 minutes to 50 minutes of really dynamic interaction with the members in the audience. We had open mic. Um, our new executive director, Chris Munchek, he got to weigh in, our president, Chuck Violand, John Lapiter, who I'm sure is listening in on the call, the president of IQA, and they're a strategic partner with REA and standards development. He got called on to weigh in, and I, I, I think um, uh, Ed's, uh, one of Ed's paralegals took a bunch of uh, notes on it. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, maybe there may be some stuff we may be able to publish as part of the proceedings on some of the key dialogue and interaction that took place, I think that would be beneficial to the members. Um, my key message uh, in the, both the opening and the close was that people come to associations to, to, to associate and do together what they can't do individually. And uh, I believe that the industry, it's time for the industry to unify and to speak with one voice. Um, and, and I think there's, there's some simple ways that we do that. The first thing is we have to understand our history and the lessons that are learned historically so that we don't repeat the mistakes. We have to learn from them. We have to deal in science-based facts. You know, Cliff talks about the MUS. Of course, Ken's going to talk about that. But we've learned a lot, uh, you know, over the last several years, and it's important that we differentiate facts from fiction to make these important decisions. That requires good education to the general public, uh, obviously within our industry, and I think to the people who bear the bulk of the cost of the services, whether it's the insurance industry, uh, the, the federal government, property management, et cetera. And then I, I think, uh, it, you know, at the end of the day, through association, networking with other members, uh, creating relationships, and learning global lessons, particularly in the, in the world that we live in today, there's lessons that could be learned uh, all around the globe that the different countries and different people know different things. In particular, I'm very excited about the work that the, that the, the British uh, restorers have been doing for quite a few years in the UK to partner and work with the insurance industry. It's my hope that uh, in the next year or two, they'll be able to uh, come over to one of the RAA conventions and, and share those lessons, you know, with the rest of our members and with the industry. And um, I guess my closing message is something that uh, uh, anyone has followed, followed this show and particularly that, uh, that special show that me and Cliff did about a year ago. Um, I kind of ended with the, uh, with the shot from uh, Jimmy V's place in North Carolina when I was down there. I had a picture with his, uh, you know, don't quit, don't ever quit. And um, I think that's what it's going to take. Uh, you know, like Jimmy Jimmy V says, you know, if, if you laugh every day, if you think every day, and if you have your, your emotions move to tears, he said that's one heck of a day. And I think that we just can't give up. We can't ever give up. We have to do what's right. We have to seek to unify the industry, and we have to be able to pass on the legacy of the restoration industry that guys like Cliff and so many of us have, have taken from those that came before us to pass on to the next generation. There was an unbelievable feeling of a lot of the new young Turks and the next generation uh, in the exhibit hall and all throughout the, the convention hotel, and I think that's starting to be prevalent really throughout all kinds of industry events, and I think it's, it's important for our generation to support those people and to pass the industry in a better place than we found it. And on that note, I wish everybody a happy Passover and a happy Easter week. And uh, thank you, guys. All right. Well, thank you, Pete. Let's let's get um, – Cliff, do you want to start with Ken or Peter? 
No, I'd rather start with Ken. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to get to everybody, but uh, you know we have limited time. Ken, uh, thanks for joining us, and let's just get into it. Why did the insurance industry create contractor program work? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I would like to say thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate being here uh, with uh, this great group. Um, well, to answer that question, why the uh, insurance industry created contractor program work, originally it was um intended to identify and coordinate quality contractors and expedite the assembly of good documentation so that, you know, a qualified insurance claim representative could efficiently review the file and then settle the claim and expedite the process. And actually, when you think about it, that's a really honorable service with a legitimate value. But over the course of time, the program work has, you know, slowly devolved into a service whereby a group of uneducated bullies exercise price reduction tactics that do not necessarily reflect a, a fair settlement, then there's only one way to handle a bully, and that's to actually grow this spine, to grow a spine and stand up to them. You know, th there's an illustration that uh, a local contractor told me as he was describing his, his experience with these TPAs. He says um, he likes to use the illustration about this poor, abused stepchild who, you know, lived their whole childhood in this house where the father relentlessly and heartlessly beats the poor child. And for many years, that child has nowhere to go. They just don't have any options. And they must endure that heartless and unfair treatment for those many years. But there's surely going to come a day when that child is going to grow up, and they're eventually going to muster up the courage and the strength to stand up to that abusive parent, and then they will leave the house. Now, I personally think that restorers have matured in the last 10 to 15 years after having endured that abusive relationship with TPAs and some of the um, unfair program uh, work that's out there. You know, these contractors are now committed to a strong, committed, and they're now strong enough to see the program work uh, that exists today is actually non-sustainable, and it's certainly not a fair agreement. So I see them actually at the point where they're going to start to leave. Cliff, Joe, question. All right, let, let me get Peter Crosse in here for a moment. I, we we skipped over this a little bit, and I, I want to go back, Peter, and ask as an adjuster, what do you consider to be ethical, unethical, professional, and unprofessional? at least regarding gratuities, and I don't know if that really is anything that led into the TPA thing or not, but it is an important issue. Okay, well, uh, gratuities is not a preferred word because gratuities implies that you're paying somebody back for something they did for you. So I like the idea of promo and entertainment, and that is an acceptable expense item, according to IRS codes, and it applies to any business across the board. So let's, let's consider promo and entertainment. I believe that promo and entertainment is on solid ethical grounds if it is done to enhance or reinforce a relationship. If it is done to pay back for business or to influence an idea concerning damages or the quantification of damages, that's unethical. That's a ne negative. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I appreciate and, it. And Go ahead. I, 
Yeah, and and I I don't I don't see that necessarily as a reason for the programs, but I, I think Ken was exactly right, and I would just add that a very foremost important thing in the adjustment of a claim is for the adjuster to maintain control of a claim. And I think about 30 years ago, some top claims executives came together and said, what are we going to do? We've lost control of these claims. The contractors are in charge. And then somebody got the idea, well, we control the purse strings. So let's make them play by our rules. Let's not let them work on our losses unless they do agree to, uh, agree to some terms. And that's where it all started. It was about controlling the claim. Okay. And let me go over to Ed Cross, the restoration attorney. Ed, we'll, we'll go back into the TPA in just a moment, but following up on the, the question that I, that I asked Peter, um, you know, I, I hear about, now I'm not in the restoration side all that much, but, but I hear about contractors maybe providing a, um, a payment to a plumber or to whomever to, you know, help get them a finder fee, essentially. Can a restoration contractor legally pay a referral or a finder fee to a plumber or to anyone else? Well, first off, thank you very much, Joe and Cliff, for this opportunity to be on your important show once again on this Good Friday. I have no idea what Advocatus Diabaldi means, but I'm looking forward to hearing about that. <laughs> I'm humbled to be on a panel with important dignitaries like Pete, Ken, and Peter, although I'm not sure how Ken could have been involved in the industry for four decades. He only looks 42. <laughs> uh, congratulations on your Marty King Award, Ken, by the way. Thank you. Um, I speak from the perspective of California law, and the rules are different in different states. Uh, as many of you already understand, California tends to be very pro-consumer and is arguably anti-business. And uh, Ken made a good point at the convention that laws tend to move in the U.S. Uh, from the west to the east, and that California is kind of on the forefront of a lot of uh, legal actions and legislative developments, and that uh, the, the country tends to follow some of the, the rules that California implements. And California prohibits a referral fee being paid from a contractor to another contractor. And so uh, the California State Contractors License Board put out a newsletter specifically addressing what they call illegal kickbacks. The concern is that uh, the, the payment of finder's fees or referral fees or any sort of compensation or gifts in any manner is going to increase the uh, cost of the service to the consumer and is going to create an uneven uh, playing field for the companies that don't pay uh, those particular uh, referral fees. I have a lot of problems with that particular rule. Um, I, I don't share the concern that it creates uh, an uneven playing field for the reason that the only reason it's an uneven playing field is because the California legislature decided it would be illegal. And so the ones who are following the law uh, can't compete at the same level, uh, but that's just because there's a law there and other regulated licensed professions in California, such as the legal profession and the real estate profession, are allowed to pay referral fees. 
Uh, but in California, when it's from contractor to contractor, it's considered an illegal kickback. If it's from a contractor to a non-contractor, it's not considered an illegal kickback. Okay. Thank you, Ed, and, and thanks again for joining us. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks. Okay, Ken. Uh, you came up at the IESF with this term, spineless. Do you think that criticism is too harsh, or do you really mean it? Yeah, I, you know, it kind of just came out of my mouth, and I, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't regret saying it. Um, listen, I, I feel the biggest need in the restoration industry today is the need for the contractor to muster up the courage to grow this spine and stand up to these people who demand unreasonable and unfair concessions on a competently executed project. There are just so many plainly uneducated reviewers of our uh, work on a job who demand that we forfeit you know, perfectly justifiable charges and who demand that we deliver a substandard product. Now, you know, I, I would ask, you know, what would a reasonable person say defines the actions of a so-called first-rate restorer? Well, I would suggest that most people would define that contractor as being someone who would deliver a quality product that falls into compliance with the standard of care to be followed. So they're going to be a quality uh, product. They would also uh, provide good customer service, which includes the ability to warranty the end product and manage their own risks associated with running their own business. And third, they must have reasonable, usual, and customary pricing so that the business model is sustainable. Now, people make their buying decisions on those three factors, quality, service, and price. Now, the buyer can control any two of those factors, but the third factor must be controlled by the seller. Now, any program that dictates all three factors for the contractor must therefore be a one-sided agreement. So a first-rate restorer would not agree to a one-sided program. A first-rate restorer would not agree to massive price reductions. And I've seen some of these price reductions as high as 50 to 75% demanded by these reviewers, that they reduce the bill by 75%. Now, what do you think the insurance industry believes about the contractor's honest and fair pricing when they consistently cave to the reviewer's demands for price reductions. Surely that contractor must have misrepresented the services and prices reported in their scope of work. That contractor couldn't possibly be viewed as a first-rate restorer that had honest documentation. So those who fail themselves to be, um, or to represent themselves as a first-rate restorer, they must therefore be referred to as a second-rate restorer. Now, look, I, I know those are tough words, and they're very hard to swallow, but I don't think there would be many who would argue the accuracy of the statement. I, I recently spoke to a, a contractor. Actually, he sent me an email last night, and I think he understands what I meant when I said that contractors need to grow a spine. He said, I would offer that the need for future restoration contractors to get a spine is, called by the old, uh, is caused by the older generation. That would be us. Specifically, the nationals, the big franchises, jumping over each other to undercut each other. I'm confident that we and the millennials coming on board in our companies will thrive, be disruptive with new technology, and with the energy I'm seeing from them, just watch what they can do. Now, I'm, I'm, 
I'm ahead. seeing a lot of contractors that made their firm decision to get out of the whole TPA referral source of work. It's just not sustainable, and they're you know trying to get new uh, business acquisition techniques. And I'm personally, I'm saying it's about time. You know, I'd kind of like to get Ed Ed Cross in here for a moment. Ed, what? In, with respect to what Ken just said, I wonder if you have any comment or anything you'd like to add to what he just said. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's talking about the standard of care, and I think that is uh, something that everybody really needs to uh, stay keenly focused on. And he indicated that first-rate restorers deliver a quality product according to the standard of care. Uh, the standard of care is practices that are common among reasonably prudent members of the trade who are recognized as qualified and competent. And uh, it's not necessarily uh, the top of the heap. It's all of the good companies. So if it's a common practice, uh, it doesn't have to be the state of the art if it hasn't risen to the level of being a common practice yet. Uh, But the way I look at it is, the way most of these companies keep themselves out of trouble is first and foremost by maintaining good customer relations, being a good listener, and helping to address the needs of the consumer. Secondarily, uh, by providing good quality uh, workmanship and obeying the standard of care. And as a third priority, uh, to make sure that they've got good documentation and they've dotted their I's and crossed their T's. Okay, thank you, Ed. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Well, Ed, you know, where and how are consumers attaining the necessary knowledge and expertise to extract money from contractors? How are they learning to do this? That's a very good question, and um, I think with the new technology that's available these days and uh, the instant access to information, Uh, I think that's the the key to it. I've noticed uh, a recent uptick uh, in the last couple of years, particularly with consumers making claims against restorers' contractors' bonds and against restorers' contractors' licenses. In fact, a big part of my professional effort over the last year has been specifically dedicated to defending California contractors on disciplinary actions against their contractors' licenses. And the California State Contractors License Board has a very robust pro-consumer website where anybody can go on and find out all of these things they can do to uh, go after the contractor. The State License Board is operating to prosecute contractors at no charge to the consumers. So years ago, a consumer would primarily seek to hire a lawyer and would have to incur attorney's fees for that. If they're making a complaint against a contractor's license or making a claim against a bond, that's something they can do themselves. And then the surety for the bond undertakes the investigation or the contractor state license board undertakes the investigation, prosecutes the contractor while the consumer is able to sit back. And these have devastating impact on contractors and the penalties that are being sought are totally inconsistent. You'll see a minor infraction uh, against one contractor who's getting a slap on the wrist and the same fact pattern against another contractor with a clean record where the state is seeking to have that license revoked and suspended permanently. So 
uh, I have kind of what I developed, the Restoration Lawyers Threat Advisory System. And I've, uh, I've ranked the risk against contractors' licenses at a threat level of orange. And I hope it's something that uh, everybody will take seriously. Wow. Thank you, Ed. We've got to take a break. Thank our sponsors. Um, for those of you that have been logging in and out, we, we're blowing up TalkShoe, which is good, uh, but we'll, all, of course, have a good, solid um, recording of the whole show when we're done. We'll be back in 90 seconds. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. We have Ken Larson, Ed Cross, Peter Crosa, and Pete Consigli, and, of course, the Z-Man on the line. Uh, Peter Crosa, I want to pull you back in here. We have Ed Cross talking from, you know, California and talking a little bit about the specifics of California state law. Let's get into Florida just a little bit. Um, you do a lot of work in the Florida area, and, and they have a little different program but before I, I go into that was there anything you wanted to follow up on with respect to what either Ken or Ed said no I'm I'm good with exactly the way they staged it okay let's talk a little bit about Florida compared to you know well-known insurance companies we see on TV you know all state state farm you're in good hands with you know whatever how is Florida citizens different what's that all about well Florida Citizens was created as an insurer of last resort. Uh, one of the major insurance companies pulled out after a severe period of multiple hurricanes about 10 years ago, you may be aware. And so buying standard homeowners insurance became very difficult. So Citizens was created for that group of people that were having a hard time getting their insurance placed, especially since one of the major players pulled out of the market entirely. And citizens' policy is more restrictive than the other companies. Okay. And basically, it's a seller's market. And Peter, who adjusts the claims for citizens? Citizens has entered into contractual agreements with various independent adjusting firms throughout the state, and they uh, train them in the ways that they want the claims handled and specifically on the limitations of their policy. 
and uh, and every year they bid for new players in that uh, market. All right, I've got a, a text question I'd like to get into here, and it's it's for Ed. Um, Ed, we've got a contractor attorney, general counsel listening in. He'd like to know what do you think about the merits of contractors taking assignment of the claim in return for agreeing to do the scope needed instead of the one approved, and then suing for bad faith on a very select basis? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, thank you for calling that in. Um, First off, I think it's important for everybody to understand what an assignment of benefits is. Uh, An assignment of benefits is a transfer of a legal right where the ownership of that right is going from one party to another, in this case from the insured to the contractor who actually steps into the shoes of the insured and can deal directly with the insurance company. Um, A lot of contractors think they have an assignment of benefits in their contracts, but they don't. What they have is a direction of pay, which is simply an instruction to send the check to the contractor. That's not an assignment of benefits. By analogy, if I tell my friend to drop my car off at your house, that's different from me signing over the title of my car to you. Um, The best assignments of benefits are broad, and they include a transfer of all of the insured's rights under the policy relative to the work done by the restorer. Um, That's not just for the proceeds, but for all the rights under the policy, including the right to sue the insurance company and uh, all of the benefits relative to the restorer's work. I think the assignment of benefits should be formally tendered to the insurance company in a letter that's dedicated exclusively to uh, the assignment of benefits to highlight that and, uh, and give that marquee value. So um, these are important points that will help to uh, accelerate a contractor's uh, collections. And so um, I, I hope I answered the question. All right. Well, thank you. If, if, you, if he has a follow-up, please text it in. And Cliff, let me turn it over to you. I think we're going to bring Ken back in. Yep. Thanks. Ken, from a contractor's perspective, what's the noticeable difference between doing program work and being uh, under the auspices of a third-party administrator? That's a good question. Um, and I think, personally, I think there's a clear delineation between the, you know, the difference in uh, working for program work and a TPA. It, you know, originally program work was loosely defined uh, to uh, identify the contractor's qualifications and get them on the list and to identify certain service expectations. Uh, the payment would uh, usually be just usual and customary prices that were common within the general industry. That would be program work. And that's actually a sustainable model. The buyer took control of two of the three purchasing decisions. That's a fair arrangement. You can work with that. The TPA model, however, dictates the product, the service, and the prices. And that's, by definition, a non-sustainable model, and it's abusive to the contractor's freedom to conduct fair trade. Hey, uh, hey Cliff and Joe, this is Pete. Can I I dovetail off that? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so look, I think 
one of the points, and it's important for the listeners to put this in context based on what Ken is saying, the, the, the idea of having TPAs um, you know, serve as middlemen for insurance companies and, and contractors has existed for many, many years. In the, in the really old days, in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s in the development of the industry, a lot of those TPAs were run by independent insurance uh, adjusting firms. Many of these guys, uh, Peter knows, uh, they're members of the National Association of Insurance Adjusters. They were primarily used when big carriers had overflow work in a particular market, couldn't get adjusters out there, or smaller companies that didn't have uh, enough, you know, enough business in a particular market to actually uh, have a, an office there. The difference now is, is the, it seems that the carriers across the board have now kind of uh, given these these outside organizations all the all the claims adjusting work and and as it's grown so so big and, and the points that Ken makes you have a lot of people in there who are not trained like the old line adjusters the people that understood all the policy interpretations understood how to work with contractors maybe those guys back in the day went to the to Bell Tech and they understood construction and all that stuff even though they weren't experts in it they're able to talk with contractors. To me, that's the huge issue. That's the difference between the TPAs of years gone by and, and this new model, which has emerged in the last 10 years, and that's in the essence of where I believe the issues are. Thank you, Pete. And, and let's turn it over to Peter Croso. Peter, I've got a question for you. With respect to these TPAs and, and insurance adjusters, what kind of tactics or recommendations do you have for contractors when an insurance adjuster or a TPA may be pressuring them to cut the scope and the costs on their project? Well, so what you're being asked to do is is unethical if you deem certain uh, mitigation to be required in order to put that person uh, back into a pre-loss condition. And so, so technically you're being asked, well, leave the mold or don't treat the, the water or the wetness or the moisture, et cetera. And so you've got to basically document what you're being asked to do. You've got to let the agent know. You've got to let the homeowner know what you're being asked to do and what's at stake here, uh, unless you just want to comply. And I, and I think therein lies the growing a spine um, admonition here, because you can either cower and you can say, okay. I'll do it just the way they want me to do it, but it won't be done right. Or you can raise hell, let everybody know, and then maybe it's going to put you in some kind of jeopardy with that relationship, but you're doing the right thing. Thank you, Peter. Let's turn it over to Ed Cross. Ed, any follow-up to that? Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's important in that situation uh, to keep in mind the distinctions between pricing and the work that's actually being done. And so hopefully just because the price is being negotiated, the scope of work isn't being reduced. In the event that the contractor is not being given an opportunity to get paid for certain parts of the services or the adjuster says we're only going to pay for three days of drying, then the contractor should formally notify the insured of the problem, make recommendations in writing uh, stating that it's not going to dry within three days, explaining the harm that will result from it, and making sure that the, uh, the customer is going to pay for whatever amount 
isn't covered by the insurance company. And in the event they refuse to do that, the contractor should seek a release of liability from the consumer uh, for that work. And if they refuse to sign a release of liability, you send a letter to create a paper trail of those circumstances. All right. Thank you, Ed. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a moment. Yeah. uh, I think it was Peter Croce that had mentioned the word relationship, and that brings something back uh, in my memory. And and I'm going to ask Ken to comment on this. I remember when insurance, you know, when my service firm was being solicited to participate in these programs, and they told me that, you know, I had a marketing cost and uh, I wouldn't have that expense anymore because they were going to be giving me the work. So I think what happened was contractors give up a, a chunk of money and they have an idea what their marketing cost is. But it seems that with both program work and third-party administration that they've gotten more involved with the claim and you know management of the claim. That's another chunk that they're taking away. Supervision, that's another chunk that they're taking away. Would you agree, Ken? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, they, they allege that these um, supervisory and management fees and, and uh, you know, all these uh, perfectly justifiable and necessary elements of conducting a, a competent restoration job, that those expenses are, quote, included in your overhead. Well, no, they're not. It's an actual expense to the job, and the job would not uh, progress efficiently without those individuals on the job. So, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things that I, uh, I'm dismayed to observe as a regular practice in our industry is that these contractors are forfeiting the uh, uh, rightful revenue from having leadership and management coordinate the, um, the efficient execution of a restoration project. Um, and so I think that that's an important part of what the contractor should be uh, regularly charging for. And I think that that is an expense to a legitimate insurance claim. Okay, I've got a, a quick question for Ed Cross, and then I want to go to the roundup and see if we can't talk to Ken a little bit about what he thinks is one of the answers to these issues. But but before we do, I want to kind of set it up with this this question for Ed. Do you think the laws governing construction and the restoration industries are fair or these, or that maybe these industries are singled out and being treated differently from other fields? So I, I can imagine there's you know other industries that are talking about how the insurance companies do this and do that. Is, it, is this just something we're dealing with or is it many other groups? No, I think that the uh, construction and restoration industries have been singled out for disparate treatment, uh, particularly here in California, which is kind of the hotbed for pro-consumer laws, as I alluded to earlier. Just a couple of examples, like I mentioned before, um, uh, contractors cannot pay referral fees to other contractors, whereas lawyers and realtors can. Judgments against contractors in California must be satisfied within 90 days or the contractor's license is suspended. That doesn't happen for a doctor, for a judgment, uh, to the doctor's medical license. It doesn't happen to realtors. It doesn't happen to lawyers, just to contractors. 
California implemented a set of home improvement laws for certain types of residential work uh, back in the beginning of 2006, which said that uh, hourly fees, in other words, time and materials contracts for home improvement contracts, are illegal in the state of California. In other words, no hourly billing. I know of no other industry where uh, hourly billing has been made uh, illegal. Now, somebody up at the legislature is obviously very unhappy uh, with the construction and restoration industries. It's primarily, I think, because of bait-and-switch tactics that uh, contractors have imposed and uh, certain consumers have been a victim of, primarily getting big deposits, and then uh, the contractors disappear from the scene. And so maybe we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about some uh, potential efforts and some strategies to overcome this kind of pattern. All right. Let's go to the roundup. By the way, guest 30, I will get to your text question during the roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw All right, Cliff. I've got one more question. I want to. Um, I want to ask first, uh, Ken. Ken, um, just going through my notes here. Just give me one second. Um, you hey, had. Joe, hey, Joe, go ahead, Pete. Joe, why are you doing that? One thing I think before we go into the full-on roundup, after you ask Ken's question, I'd like you to ask uh, Peter Crosa to expand a little bit on the whole kind of comment he made during the town hall about Widow Brown. I think that'd be a, a good setup And then before we move into the roundup. Why don't we go ahead and do that now? Go ahead. Hello, Peter? Yeah. Did you hear the question yeah. from Pete? Yes. Yes, I did. Well, uh, okay, here's the thing. You need a campaign. And if you want to fight what the insurance industry is doing to you, if that's what your perception is, your campaign should be this. Don't focus on the iniquities to the contractor because nobody cares about a bunch of rich contractors. This is the perception. Nobody cares about a bunch of rich contractors saying, poor me, look what the insurance company is doing to me. Focus on the results of the iniquities to the property owner, i.e. the widow Brown. Publish those iniquities. Tell her story. Tell the victimized property owner's story, not your story. And then it'll all fall into place. And then finally is that, to me, AOB, the assignment of benefits, means let the court decide. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Who's afraid of the court? Answer that question, and you'll see what the problem is here. Thank you, Peter. Okay, we're going into the roundup. I've got a text question I want to get to Ed they're asking if we can have some discussion about carrier price fixing using an arm's length relationship with TPAs and Xactimate, which is you know a tool of as as the listener, I think indicates is of the insurance companies. How does that tie into this conversation if it does, Ed? Well, I think that it does, and the issues with the TPAs are something that have uh, generated a lot of concern in the industry. And I think what we're seeing is um, the rich are getting richer and the big companies are getting bigger. 
Um, and I think we're going to see more and more conglomeration of companies. We're going to see more plumbers getting into the restoration industry. I think we're going to see uh, more actions by uh, bigger TPAs, and it's up to the uh, the restoration industry to band together, burn together, to try to uh, stand up against it. In terms of proving a case for price fixing, that's a difficult and very expensive process. Uh, and they, the insurance industry is very careful about how they go about uh, navigating these things. Uh, but uh, I think the insurance industry is pretty bold about it. I think there is a potential uh, case there, and I think we should all uh, pay close attention to what the automotive repair industry did uh, in response to insurance company efforts to try to uh, control and reduce, uh, artificially reduce the cost of automotive repair. So this is going to be part of the ongoing discussion. Okay. Maybe we can talk about that in a little more detail. I know we talked before the show about getting you back for an hour of your own head, and I'd love to do that. Um, before. Oh, thank you. What we're going to do here for the rest of the roundup is I want to give everybody a couple of minutes to give their final thoughts. Um, before we do it, I have one last question for Ken. Ken, um, you've got a, a conception of a, a program that would have registered third-party evaluators, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of quickly tell listeners what that is, and maybe, again, this is something we could follow up on with a later show. Sure, yeah, I know we don't have much time left, but <clears throat> the registered third-party evaluator is an idea that uh, I came up with and uh, collaborated uh, with some other uh, top-level restorers in uh, conceptualizing. Here's the thought, is that the arguments that are currently being had between contractors and TPAs are frequently ridiculous because these experienced veterans of the industry who have very high levels of education, find themselves in a heated debate with uh, some so-called reviewer, not even a, a licensed uh, adjuster or a qualified uh, insurance claims representative. They are identified as a reviewer. And they say, well, I got my water restoration technician course. I got it last week. Therefore, I'm qualified to have this argument with you. And it's very frustrating to be involved in that. So I, what I came up with was the idea of having high-level, educated um, uh, professionals, seasoned veterans, um, who are recognized by their peers as being an expert on the subject of uh, restoration, not some self-declaration of being an expert like the TPAs are. They claim themselves to be an expert. No, no. This is the industry says that person over there, he is an expert. Now, that person should be registered as an expert, a registered third-party evaluator. And so what I think should happen is that these registered third-party evaluators should be uh, present on these jobs from the very beginning. They would do their best to not represent any particular entity, but rather represent the needs of the structure, represent the needs of the actual uh, restoration effort that would be competently executed, and I think that would uh, bring some uh, uh, skill and, and, and um, good value to the settlement of a fair settlement of an insurance claim. So these insurers who have unqualified TPAs on the job to bully the contractor, I say the contractor can benefit from having a giant friend 
with a monster formal education credential and a baseball bat of a resume who can help them in their decisions with the TPA bully. That's what I think. Thank you, Ken. Cliff, do you have any follow-up before we give everybody one last... I don't. Uh, I, I don't. I want to give my time to the guest. Okay. Let's let's start with Peter Grosso. Peter, bef- before you give us your final thoughts, I'm wondering, you know, with respect to what Ken just said, uh, I can imagine the insurance companies aren't going to be too terribly thrilled with his idea. I mean, w- would I be correct there? <clears throat> Well, I mean, if I had to be cynical about it, I would say that their response is going to be uh, that this is something that your organization invented yourself and that you have no credibility with us. And it could be that it's going to have to withstand the test of legal uh, battle. And then once it's proven in court to be a superior designation, maybe it will have some credibility. But of course, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about someone who changes the rules in the middle of the game. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's a brilliant idea, and I certainly support it. Um, but playing devil's advocate using uh, the Z-man's secret term, um, I have to wonder if, uh, if they would challenge it in that way. Okay. Thank you, Peter. And let's, let's get your final thoughts. Anything you'd like to add before we go on to Ed Cross and then Ken, and then finally we'll let the watchdog wrap it up. Well, uh, again, who's afraid of AOB? AOB to me means let the court decide and uh, focus on the results of the iniquities to the widow Brown. Don't tell everyone about your story. Don't poor mouth it. But you, you tell Widow Brown's story and about how she was left with an undry building or with mold hidden in the walls and so on, and the insurance company didn't come through and make her whole again. Thank you, Peter. And let's go over to Ed Cross. Ed, any final thoughts either on what Ken's idea was or just anything in general? And I had another question for you, too, as far as um, you know, what do you see as the biggest legal need for the restoration industry? But I'll give you your choice. Any of those you want to touch? Yeah, I have a comment on a micro level as well as a macro level. On a micro level, I think that a lot of professionals in the restoration industry miss important collections opportunities because they're not taking advantage of their right to record a mechanics lien. That's something that has to be done carefully. There's deadlines to file them and deadlines to foreclose them, and the deadlines are short. Mechanics liens are great settlement tools, and in reality, actual foreclosure is rarely necessary. Having a mechanics lien gives an added benefit because it gives leverage not only in the negotiations with the homeowner, but also with a mortgage company who's holding the funds. Um, On a macro level, Um, I think that it's really important for the industry to join forces. Um, Peter talked about uh, changing rules in the middle of the game. Actually, some insurance companies now are trying to change rules after the game by coming back and seeking refunds of amounts that have already been paid to restoration contractors, in some instances, one or two years or more after the project is done and coming back and saying, we've done a re-re-review, and now we think that you charge too much and you owe us a big refund, and I'm defending them on that, and that's something we're, we're fighting very vigorously. 
Ken talked about how to deal with bullies. I once, uh, in a past life when I was representing homeowners, represented Paul Michael Glazer, who played the role of Starsky on Starsky and Hutch. And we had a case against a powerful player in Hollywood. And Paul said the only way to deal with a bully is to stand up and punch him straight in the nose. What the restoration industry needs to do, in my opinion, is get a lobbyist to represent it. The insurance industry has powerful lobbyists and has a voice in front of these legislatures, whereas the restoration industry uh, really does not. It's silent. So I think it's key for the RIA, hopefully acting in concert with other important organizations like IAQA, uh, to band together and, and make that happen. And I want to echo Pete's point uh, that the industry needs to take on more of a leadership role to be a global voice of restoration contractors in their fight to protect and, and persevere uh, and preserve the rich legacy of industry pioneers and trailblazers like its four founding fathers, uh, Marty King, Lloyd Weaver, Claude Blackburn, and, of course, you, Cliff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed Cross. And let's go yeah. to Ken. Yeah. Joe, Joe, can I add one one final point Please do, to Peter. my statement? Yes. <clears throat> About the certified third-party evaluator uh, program. I think that if, if it had originated from a separate group, separate from the RIA, it would add to its credibility, such as some form of consumer protection group that is unaffiliated with the restoration industry, that that would, that would serve to, uh, to establish an independent, credible body uh, that would be more, more respected, maybe, and, and uh, listened to by the insurance industry. That was it. Thank you, Peter. All right, Ken, let's get your final thoughts on today's program and the, the topic. Yeah, Peter's thought was a really good idea. I haven't thought of that one. Thank yeah. you, Peter. Um, my uh, thought is that uh, I, I believe that most restoration contractors in the industry have the aspiration of being a first-rate contractor. And so Amen. I invite those individuals to actually um, review what they believe a first-rate contractor is and define it, and then aggressively <laughs> go out and get it. And if uh, their current... Uh, practices are not uh, in alignment with what they define to be a first-rate contractor, that perhaps they should revisit what they're currently doing and reinvent themselves. All right. Ken, thank you, and, and, and thank all of you for joining us. Let's go to the global Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Why don't you go ahead and tie this all together for us, Pete? All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, great job, by the way, uh, that all-star panel at Cliff and Joe. You guys really did a fantastic job. So listen, just two quick housekeeping items. I, um, you know, the, I, I, I was the one who had the privilege of uh, delivering Cliff's uh, acceptance speech for the Golden Quill because based on the Passover holidays, he couldn't be in Palm Springs. That speech and Sam's speech for the Marty, uh, Marty Award for Ken are going to be published with feature stories in a future cleaning restoration article, and I think there was some really important stuff there, so I did want to mention that. Um, listen, a couple of things, and i got a little little list here. For one thing, I think this global connection is extremely important. When we're talking about some of the pricing issues that uh, somebody texted in and, and had addressed, the, the Canadians, uh, the antitrust laws in Canada are a little bit different than the U.S., but they did, um, they hired Deloitte, uh, Deloitte Touche, to do a market research 
on uh, the pricing, the state of pricing, and actually did bring uh, Exactware to the table to have a, a professional discussion. I mean, Exactware, as everyone knows, is like the Microsoft of, uh, of, of the estimating industry for, for restoration and property repair, and um, it did affect change. So I, I think that all of those restorers out there who uh, get those requests from Exactware to pull information and to uh, give them current information when they publish their updates, the, the project managers need to stop what they're doing and, and, and give that information. Uh, because what Exactware says is what they get is what they, they, you know, give back. Now, there are people who may contest some of that, but that's not the point. The point is if people are not taking the time to provide information, then we, we need to be careful if we're going to bitch too much about that. Um, the Brits, I want to reinforce the Brits. The Brits made a decision several years ago to work directly with the insurance industry through the British Standards Institute, which is like their ANSI, to develop standards together. And then also they developed a designation under the BDMA, which is Canada's counterpart to RAA, to actually have a designation for professional adjusters in, in uh, skilled and damage repair. Not the same as a damage technician, but similar from an adjusting standpoint. They need to share those lessons because they've worked together with the insurance industry for the greater good. The jury's still out, but that's out, that's out there. Now, when you look at the U.S., what we've done in 2007, that Colorado led the charge with this uh, anti-steering law legislation. Joe Regal, in particular, uh, won the Marty King Award that year. Marty gave it to him. He called him a hero because uh, he led the charge, and REA supported that Uh uh, you know, we haven't heard much about that. It's been almost 10 years, and there was some legislation in, in other states. But like Ed Cross says, the insurance has a powerful lobby, and, and the restoration in, in, industry doesn't. So I think that's something that, that uh, probably the industry needs to take under consideration. Um, uh, you know, Ken, when Ken talked about his RTP program, I think he also meant that he or she was qualified we have a lot of women in the industry, and uh, and there's a good handful of women who are, have those advanced designations and uh, wanted to get that in. But I, I love the fact that Ken said that, uh, you know, I, the baseball bat analogy, you know, and uh, it comes to the schoolyard if you're going to meet the bully with a, base, with a baseball bat. The, the thing that Ed Cross talked about, um, about coming back later to bring the money back, I think the term for that is called the clawback. Uh, a lot of people are not aware of that. But I think that just kind of adds more insult to injury that uh, not only do the rules get changed, but uh, they get changed again and again and again, and that, that's just un unforgivable. Now, having said all of that, to, to give the other side of the view, you know, um, my father always used to say you can catch a lot more flies with sugar than you can with vinegar. So the industry uh, has launched this PIRC, the Property um, uh, Industry uh, and Restoration Conference, uh, which which follows in the in the footsteps of the collision industry. Ed had mentioned, you know, what happened. Normally, what happens in, in the collision industry eventually filters down to property. The REA is supporting that, as are a lot of major national uh, players in the industry. It's a forum where the insurance people, the software providers, all the stakeholders, restorers, the TPAs, uh, can get in a room around a table with uh, no one voice, kind of uh, ruling the roost, if you would and try to identify challenges and put committees together with come up solutions. So I, I, the, the jury's out on that. I think we need to pay attention to that and see where that takes us all. Um, and uh, I, I guess in conclusion, at the end of the day, it's all about politics. You know, Harvey Cohen on a couple different occasions at both REA and I think really probably on some shows he's done with IQ Radio, talks about that people need to get involved with politics on a local le level because at the end of the day, 
everything comes down to politics. Whether you agree with that or not, you know, the battle is in Florida. Three of the people on this show are all from Florida. And, uh, and this AOPD issue, people think it's just a Floridian issue. I don't believe it is. I think what happens with that AOP in Tallahassee is going to send waves throughout the rest of the country and around the rest of the world because it's all about the battle between the insurers and the restorers and this divide that exists. So um, any of the Floridians uh, on this call and will read Cliff's blog, I think they should consider going to this uh, fair, have their annual show. It's in St. Petersburg on May 24th. Uh, Peter Cross and myself will be there, as well as some other local restorers. I'm going to send an email out to some of the usual suspects. That includes you, Mr. Lapator. I know you're listening. And I think that the, 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 the locals in Florida need to go to that show. That show, uh, that's the, the Florida Association for Insurance Reform. And uh, Harvey's went publicly on the record and said, fair isn't fair. Uh, anymore. And so I'm not speaking out of turn here, but you want to know what? That's what politics is about. If you don't have a seat at the table, if you're not going to be proactive, if you're not going to step up and do something, then don't complain and don't bitch about it. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But I think the fate of our industry is at stake. And those of us that have put their livelihoods in it and our families uh, and companies depend on on it, um, I think that they have a duty and an obligation to do that. So uh, hopefully some of the local Floridians I'll, I'll see in May there. A bunch of the other ones who listen, I'll be up in Clearwater for the experience show in the IICRC meetings. Look forward to seeing many of the friends up there. And I think we just need to keep in carrying that message. And, and, Joe, I know that was a message that you carried on all the boards that you've served on and Cliff also, is that the industry needs to start talking. We need to put this, some of these, these other institutional uh, issues and rivalries behind us. And it's, and it's time for us to start getting together to collaborate and to speak with one, one voice. And uh, anyway, on behalf of the panel and all RIA guys, I'd like to thank you for your continued support of uh, the association and really of, of addressing the most cutting-edge issues uh, that face the industry today. Uh, Cliff, Joe, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you, Pete, and and well done, well said, and you know you blew up talk shoe today. So apparently there are others out there that uh, are at least very interested in what we're talking about. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guests, Mr. Pete Consigli, Ken Larson, Peter Crosa, and Ed Cross, the restoration attorney. We will be back next Friday at noon. We've got a a home performance and indoor air quality show. We've got Ellen Tone. She's the author of a recent uh, report from EPA. It's a nice guidance document on indoor air quality and home performance and what you know, how home performance can affect indoor air quality positively. And, of course, there are also some some potential negative things that occur when you start to tighten up homes. But uh, look forward to that. And, of course, look forward to getting some of the folks that we had on today back again to continue this discussion. So before we go, I also want to say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, our engineer, John. You got to have faith. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.